Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people about how they do their thing and how they keep it going, especially during a pandemic. Uh, my guest today has found a great way to stay creative. Uh, his name is Randy Harrison. He's an actor. You may know him as Justin from Queer as Folk. He is currently starring in a streaming production of the play Cock. Uh, it's being done by the Studio Theater out of Washington, D.C. I watched it. It is terrific, and he is terrific, and I was so excited to talk to him. But before we get to the interview, I just want to get a plug-in for You Don't Know My Life. That's the virtual game nights I've been hosting. Uh, still going strong, so if you have an occasion you want to celebrate, maybe you're separate from your friends, or not everyone's been vaccinated yet, you're still finding your way, maybe you have a birthday, let me host a game night for you. It's super fun. It's meaningful. It's the Zoom thing that doesn't feel like you wish it was something else. It's it's cool that way. So learn about that at youdon'tknowmylife.com. Uh, somebody emailed asking about my virtual tip jar. Yes, I still do it. You can, if you want to kick in a little and help me pay for the expenses that come with doing this, you can do that at dennisanyone.net, and there's a little virtual tip jar there. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And here now is the interview with Randy Harrison. Joining me now via Zoom, it's Randy Harrison. He's the star of the new production of Cock that is currently streaming through the Studio Theater in Washington, D.C., but it's available all over the place. You can watch it. Randy, it's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. Uh, now, we met before, and I, I hope you remember this. I was the first, I wrote the first cover story on Queer as Folk for The Advocate, and I went to Toronto. And I interviewed you. I interviewed everybody, and I observed and all of that. It was a very exciting time. So I don't know if you, you had remember. like a big set visit. Do you remember what we were shooting? Back it was then? a sh it was a scene between. It was Hal Sparks. I think it was Hal and and maybe Gail. I don't think you were in the scene that I was that I was watching. I okay. think it might have been Hal Sparks and and Gail. I didn't I didn't see you work. Okay. Um, but it, it was a scene, I know it was a scene in Hal Sparks' apartment. Um, okay. The other thing I remember vividly is there was a sign in the office over the fax machine that said, or the copy machine that said, don't stick dildos on the wall above it because it'll fall and break the fax machine. <laughs> Apparently that had that been a thing. that actually happened at some point in the right, early Right, right. <laughs> but um, we'll talk about that a little later. I want to talk to you about cock. Um, Great. <laughs> you must have been a <laughs> oh, good good transition there, right? So, what's it like to star in a show like that and tell people? Like, I'm sure you have funny conversations about it, right? I do, I do. I, I, well, what are you doing? I, what are you doing in DC? I'm doing cock. Yeah, I know, but you're working too, right? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I sort of preface it. It really depends on the group that I'm talking to, whether or not I have to explain the title or not. Right, and if the show itself was on my radar, I'd never seen it. I think it was a big hit in London. I don't. Mm -hmm. it, it may have played in New York, but not on Broadway, right? It played off Broadway. It was right. at the Duke. You know that the, it's a small space on the on Forty Second Street, right? Yeah, and, it um, played off Broadway. So it was on my radar a bit, and then I started watching it, and I got more and more into it as as I was going. Because at first, it's a little surreal. It's not a traditional set, and by the end, I'm like, I am so freaking into this. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of what the synopsis says, because it's, it's a kind of a good description that they sent me. John breaks up with his boyfriend of many years. A few weeks later, he's desperate to be taken back, but he can't stop seeing the woman he started sleeping with in that between time. In a world with so many ways to be happy, how do we know the right thing when you have it? It's a sexy, conflicted look at attraction, ambivalence, and commitment. I thought that summed it up really nicely. It does. You play John, the man that's torn between these two people. What mm -hmm. drew you to the project? What what made you want to do this? Well, first of all, I love I love the play. I love the language of the play. I love like how you said you got more into it as you watched it. It doesn't it leaves a lot for the audience to figure out. There's it leaves a lot of pieces that you're gradually putting together and sort of understanding where the characters are, where they're coming from, and it's really sort of compelling and intellectually engaging to watch. So I love that. And I love the theme of sort of Id identity and right. uh, sort of expansive fluidity of identity and how we, a lot of times we lock down our sense of self to a specific behavior or specific notions of identity that are, you know, somewhat archaic and don't necessarily um, 
give us what we need as far as full human satisfaction. And, you know, the main character is amazing because he's just so confused and having such a hard time figuring out who he is and how he can be happy. And I think, you know, I think that's something everybody can relate to sometimes in their life. Um, this, the story is set in the UK and, and, and you do a great accent. Um, was that a choice for everybody to just say, hey, let's just keep it in the UK and that's, that's what it is? Yeah, I mean, we didn't even discuss it. I, I think the language is so specific that it couldn't it couldn't really be done without British accents. It's it, the characters and the language they use is is very very specific. Um, the, even the rhythms of, of of the of the languages, I feel like, has to be British. What's your process when you're when you're trying to incorporate an accent? What do you what tools do you use? I have like about a million different uh, dialect tapes. Well, not tapes anymore, but you know, dialect recordings. Books. I used to write in, um, you know, the phonetic alphabet, but I barely know it anymore. But I, I will go through and mark the, the specific vowel changes that I'm likely to miss. So I like to start very early with dialect work because it's odd. I mean, when you do plays, a lot of times there's a dialect coach, but they often come in, you know, after you've already been rehearsing for two weeks or something. Right, you've like, already sort of set up yeah and you're like i'm already doing a wrong dialect so so i've learned over the years that it's best to really get as much dialect information as early as you can in the process before you even start rehearsals and begin incorporating it then yeah Um, i thought everybody did a really good job i know wes colwell who was the video director of the production who did a marvelous job she did such a great job and i ran into him like a couple of years ago at a disney event at disneyland i hadn't seen him in a decade and a half Mm-hmm. But um, he's just crushing it on the video stuff um, and doing Yeah, we were job. lucky to have him. He was a godsend, really. So you don't have a traditional set. You, there's four actors in it. Um, it looks like a giant pizza crust that you're standing <laughs> on. Maybe I was just hungry when I watched it. <laughs> it's like a, you know, it's like a cockfight. It's a, a, a fighting space, like a ring. Right. That makes sense yeah. now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just was craving pizza. Like a dirt ring, mud wrestling, if, right. if it were. It there was a little more moisture. What was the physical production like? How could you be close to the other actors? Were you socially distancing from them? Or what did you, how did you make it work? It was really interesting. Well, we were we were socially distanced most of the time. I mean, after a few weeks of rehearsal when we would occasionally run scenes briefly without masks and it felt like just the actors could take off their masks. But it was an interesting staging process because, you know, normally the show would be in the round. So you'd have to, the audience would be sitting all around the circle of the space. So we, you'd have to stage in such a specific way that no actors um, were standing still for too long because your back would be to certain audience members. So you'd have to constantly shift it. And this was different because we really staged for the cameras to make sure we could just shift the angles depending on who was the focus of every scene. So it was, um, it felt theatrical in ways in that, you know, it was a traditional theater rehearsal process. We rehearsed for four weeks, we were in the space, but we were also staging it for um to set up camera angles it was because most of the cameras were completely static there were three static cameras while we shot so it was this very bizarre and fascinating hybrid uh and it was interesting to rehearse i felt and i think everybody in that room felt really really grateful to to be in a rehearsal room after this past year and to all be together and to be able to be sort of doing theater again um so early in the hopefully the end of this this past year of the pandemic exactly how long ago did you guys do this when did you shoot it we shot it in february oh not long ago february yeah yeah and how many days were you actually shooting we only shot we shot it all in one day one day beautiful there's a thing that happens after the curtain call where the camera kind of goes around and you see the crew and there's Mm -hmm. something so moving about it because you know that everybody's been through so much and you get a sense of, oh, this is how many people it took. I don't know. I just love that that part of it. I did too. I was really glad that we got to honor all of them and everybody got to be featured. Yeah, and there was this fun little cutout at the very end where it goes up to the ceiling and there's a message. And I'm like, you go, Wes. That was very clever of you. Uh Uh-huh. Because we were rehearsing during the pandemic, I mean, and because there were all these socially... I mean, we all had masks on the whole time. So it was very frustrating because I loved the cast and crew, but we didn't have any of the normal sort of bonding moments of going out and getting a drink after a 12-hour rehearsal or, you know, eating together. So sadly, um, I didn't get a lot of chance to socialize with anybody. We were sort of 
doing the work and then masking up and going home and never leaving our apartments when we weren't at rehearsal. So it was a, yeah. In a few years, people will come to you on the street and say, hey, we worked together on that show. And you're like, okay, I recognize. Like cover your face and maybe I'll (laughs) recognize the top of your head. Um, I love the ideas explored in this play because your character is someone that's not in a happy relationship. No. He, He leaves the relationship. He finds something else with a woman. He's mm-hmm. someone that's always defined himself as gay. And so as the audience, it, it, it ends up being the bachelor. Who's he going to pick? Who's going to get right. the final rose? And as a gay man, I have to confess, I wanted you to pick her. Because, really? Because she was kinder. She had that... tenderness. And then I'm thinking these things, and then this, the play says them. A lot of these words, a lot of these lines come up. And she made you feel better about who you are, you know? And so... I, to be the gay guy going, go hetero. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that's a surprising thing to feel in an audience. And and I'm not going to say what decision you make or how it plays out, but right. I found that so interesting because so much of what we see is stories about people who, to be true to themselves, end up, you know, you, you want people to be true to themselves in stories. Right. And this kind of turns that on its head in a way or or just takes it a little deeper. Um, yeah. Talk to me about those ideas, if that word salad that I just served up. For you. <laughs> no, it's interesting. I'm glad you, you felt that way. I mean, I do think the play is about trying to figure out, I mean, for the audience, you're, you're sort of picking sides both on who you think this guy is and who you think he should be with. And I think the playwright does a really good job at making it very clear that he's sexually satisfied with this woman and he loves her, but he still strongly identifies as gay and has never been attracted to a woman before and isn't attracted to other women. It's not, he does says clearly he's not bisexual. It's just this one case. So, um, I mean, the play ends up being about, you know, how he decides who he is. It's about sort of who the person is and not sexuality, which is something I think often, like when you're talking about just wanting a person to be who they are in many of the narrative stories that we see about, you know, gay men sleeping with women, we're waiting for them to accept who they are as gay men. And so this story turns it on his head because this guy has always accepted who he is as a gay man. And it's not a story about him knowing um, accepting his homosexuality. Right. That but is it, not it, the issue. No. That's, that's but it is a story about yeah. him sort of accepting who he is, but he doesn't, you know, when it's not this traditional narrative of like, you know, I'm I'm gay and I'm ashamed of it, but rather like I'm gay and I'm comfortable with it, but I'm suddenly attracted to a woman within 20 years of like an adult sexual life I've never had before. You know, what does it mean to do that? Am I abandoning myself if I, you know, end this gay relationship to be with a woman? Like, is this self-hate that I didn't know about suddenly manifesting? Right, and what am I doing to the movement? What am I doing uh, uh, this thing that I'm supposed to stand for? And how will people, what will people think of me? And and all of that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff comes up. Yeah, and just, I mean, how much we tie our identity to uh, to specific relationships with in our life. Uh, he has this great little moment where he talks about um, the characters. My character's name is John. He, John talks about uh, not knowing who he is when all three of them to get, are together because he's one person when, when he's with his male partner and he's one person when he's with his female partner. And when they're both together, suddenly he doesn't know who to be. Um, and I certainly relate to that as like an actor and a people pleaser. It's just like, I'm, I'm very good at, you know, figuring out who people want me to be and um, behaving that way in certain social contexts. I mean, I think everybody changes depending on the social context, but, um, you know, it can be confusing when those, those, those the, the, the social shifts that you make are very, very different to sort of integrate them. Well, what I took also was that it was who he was when he was with these different people. And then mm-hmm. I think he liked himself better as the person he has with a woman. And I, as a viewer, as somebody just objectively goes, yeah, you're, that's better. And mm-hmm. God, because there was a power dynamic with the gay relationship that you felt had been set from the beginning when they met, maybe the other guy was more dominant or at one point mm-hmm. he calls you a trophy. So maybe he sees you as this, the young thing you were when you got together and, and this sort of, there's a, there's a reduction that happened there. Mm-hmm. 
and yeah. you you kind of want him to get out of it. So it's also about power, I think. Mm -hmm. It is very much about power. I mean, I think the whole thing is is about power. Like it's sort of a cockfight between. I mean, I initially thought of my character as John as more passive, and that it was sort of a fight between. Uh, man and woman and my character was sort of this tug of war in the center but as I was rehearsing it I started to realize that you know John is fighting for his own thing which is in so many ways sort of the space and the freedom to decide who he is without you know other people um having being dominantly influenced on that decision of, of who he chooses to be just like the space to be himself right. um yeah, and I and I totally agree that there's this a uh, power dynamic with the male relationship. Uh, John talks about, you know, he'd been he'd been with him since since he was 21 or 22, and you know it's, you know it's like 10 over 10 years later, 10 years later, and you know he still has sort of stagnated at the age he was when he first met this, began this partnership, which I think happens a lot, especially especially younger relationships or relationships that are begun like in very early adulthood or when there's a power dynamic, you know, there's the younger, the younger partner hasn't really figured out themselves and the older person has. Um, there can be a lot of that at play and it can be hard to shake off. <laughs> and then something happens too, where one of the parents of, of the couple is brought into the mix and that throws in this whole other thing because it kind of brings up on where we fit in society and the family unit and generations. And it was like, Oh, now this. So yeah, talk mm -hmm. a little bit about what what happens there. Yeah, I think it's sort of a last ditched effort to to win John over. I mean, the 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 play culminates in a final dinner scene that is supposed to be just my character and man and and woman sort of deciding what they're going to do. And man, my male partner uh, brings his father into the mix, who shows up as a surprise to sort of advocate on on his behalf. Um, and it's a wrench. I mean, I, again, I feel like the playwright in many ways is twist doing a twist on the classic story of like a gay man not accepting himself right. because, you know, and in this case, the paternal figure is not there to be like, you know, be a straight man, have a child, you know, marry a woman, but rather to advocate, you know, be gay, be with my son. You're, you're part of our family. You're gay. You've, you know, uh, you're confused about who you are. I mean, it's sort of the classic things you hear in the other direction. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and it brings about all these, yeah, these things about family, about responsibility, about commitment. For me playing the role uh, of John, it brings this huge added bur burden of like, I'm, it's not just a relationship and my own identity I'm choosing. It's this entire family unit that's been created over the course of, a decade that I'm a part of that will, you know, fall apart if I leave. Yeah, but they're not that nice to you <laughs> no, day to day. Perfect. They're not. And do you break <laughs> away from that? One thing I thought about watching this is I know men who were in straight relationships and got married and have kids and then mm -hmm. came out at like 40 or whatever, got hot bodies, did the gay thing. <laughs> and I, in some ways I'm like, they kind of, have the best of both worlds because they have kids to take care of them when they're older and have that richness of family. I think there's a point where as you get older, having children or, or something, there's something fulfilling about that, that that's that if you're my age and you're looking at the future going, okay, okay. <laughs> like yeah. I'm going to have to figure, I have to make my own thing. Like always. Yeah. So I know I, sometimes it's scary envy them and I thought about that watching this play because it talks about those ideas of growing older and what your life's going to look like and who's going to be in it and mm -hmm. um you know when you have kids and grandkids that those roles are set and and mm -hmm. that structure is there and for the rest of us we're like okay am I going to get a little um huts next to all my gay friends that like are we gonna, like, right what's it going to look gonna like take it? yeah it's interesting. I mean, my character talks uh, to his male partner about how, you know, his female partner, they have all these fantasies about the future and having a family. And I don't know that they talk about uh, marriage. I don't think they talk about marriage. They don't talk about marriage, but having a family and growing old together and going to Paris. And and then my my 
my character talks to his male partner about, you know, we've never, we never have plans for the future. We, we right. never sort of, and because of it, we've never progressed. And, and I did think, I mean, I thought about that, you know, when I, you know, I'm 43 now, but like, you know, when I, in my twenties, like there was no marriage option. Like there was no, I mean, you could have, I mean, it was really, I mean, it still is financially difficult. I mean, it's hard to have, it's not easy necessarily to right. have children as, as a gay man, even if you're partnered. So it's, I, I'm wondering if that like not plans for the future is something that, you know, can't like, is rooted in the fact that they're gay men of a certain age and things have changed as far as, um, you know, the various developmental relationship signposts that are more, right. had traditionally been for heterosexual people, but now gay men have more access to it. So maybe younger gay men are able to plan or have children or do things that to me seemed extraordinarily difficult and kind of ridiculous when I was, you know, in my teens and twenties. And so I never made those plans. Right. Well, they certainly weren't e easy. Like straight people no. could stumble into that and have right. it all I work know. out. It might not, it could be an ugly marriage, but it could end up being like the great fulfilling family thing. Right. They could kind of accidentally do it. Gay right. Guys, exactly. It feels like you have to like, it's yeah, I mean, many of my friends who have kids, gay or straight, they, you know, say, you know, if you plan to wait till the perfect time, you never do. I yeah, mean, you just, no, you just, true. you have to be like, oops, all right, right, well, let's, let's do this. Or, okay, maybe we're ready. I don't know. But we're running out of time. Watching this, especially as it went along, it really made me appreciate when you go to the theater and there's this play with all these ideas that kind of like bounce around in your head and you end up thinking about them and you don't know the answers, but you feel like, oh, that's what theater does. That's what theater does. So I was, yeah. did you have a favorite moment or a scene to play or were you like, oh, I love this part? Yeah, I mean, I love the end. I love when John finally sort of begins to spout out where he's at in um, in part three, which is the final big dinner scene. Um, yeah. You know, the 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 play is divided into three sections and the, and the first section are the scenes with the male partner. The second section are the scenes with the female partner. And then the third section is the big dinner dinner party or dinner scene where all four of them come together with the father added. And so much of the beginning of that third section, John says very, very little. He's just sort of being like abused and pulled at and batted at and does not know what to say or how to speak or how to answer a question. Um, and finally near the, you know, about 20 minutes into that scene, finally he's forced to, forced to make a decision as well as he's capable of at the time. And um, you sort of hear and begin to understand where he's been been living the past, you know, the past 20 minutes. And it's really cathartic moment as an actor. I will say, I so wish I could do this play in front of a live audience. Um, I feel like, I feel like there's comedy that, uh, I feel like it would be a, a whole, a really magical experience to do this this play in front of an audience. And I feel like that may inform or shift what my favorite moments were. And it may become more about um, feeling the audience shift and yeah. uh, how they would shift or how you get laughs or don't get laughs or feeling them, you know, change sides. I think the audience is always, you know, rooting for one person or another, and then they turn on one person or another. And um, it's hard to intuit that without an audience. Um, but definitely by about the time, I mean, a little bit before we shoot it and when we shoot it, I was in this place where I'm like, oh, this, I, I would be so excited to do this in front of, an, uh, front of an audience. I feel like it would be such a thrilling, a thrilling thing to be a part of as an actor. Well, I hope you get to. That yeah. seems like it could yeah. happen. And, well, and hearing you talk about it as an audience member, it sounds like, you know, the experience was had. You're certainly you know, engaged in the way that I would, I would dream an audience member would be engaged right. watching in the way that, in, the, in the way that a powerful play can do that, uh, which, yeah. which is thrilling in this era when there just isn't that option very many places. Mm -hmm. And it's different than movies, um, which I also love. But um, yeah. how old were you when you got Chris Folk, when we, when we would have met? Uh, I was probably, tw I was 21 or 22. Wow. And so it's since, like 20, then, 20. since then, you've done... A, ton of stage work you were in wicked and you've been on on things like mr robot and i, I know the movie's such good good people mm -hmm. when did you decide this is what you wanted for your life was it before queer spoke or was it sometime oh. after no very early i 
I mean, I started acting when I was about 10 years old, not professionally, but in community theaters. And uh, I, I think I've, I acted, I was doing a play practically all the time from when I was 10 until, until the pandemic, really. Right. Um, so it was always something I knew I wanted. And it was something I loved. And it was something, I mean, I knew I wanted it to do. I mean, who knows when I was 10 years old. I knew I loved doing it when I was 10 years old. But definitely by the time I was in high school, by the time I was 13 or 14, I knew it was something I wanted to pursue professionally. Right. And that would be theater or film or television. It was sort of all... all... It was all, I mean, it was acting. It was yeah. performing. Yeah. Um, I did music stuff too, but I, I, yeah, I wanted to act. I didn't really, I mean, theater was my home because that, that was the venue that, you know, I had at that time. So it was always the main focus. And then I, I went to theater school for college. I got a BFA in theater. Um, and it was actually around when I was in college that I started to get really interested in film and television and started to think maybe that's an area of the work that I, I could have a place in as well. And uh but, you know, queer came out of, kind of came out of nowhere as far as a gig, a job for me. How I had just graduated. about it? Was it just through an agent or something like that? Yeah, it was through, well, I knew about the show because I knew about the British series. Right. I knew, um, and I knew there was a part of like, in the British series, he was 15, I think. Yeah. Um, so I knew there was a part of this like young kid and I knew, I mean, I was 20 something, but I looked like two years old. So I knew I was like, I'm good for this part. Yeah. Um, and I was also comfortable doing um, gay sex. Like I, I'd always wanted to, to um, play gay roles, to be a part of visibility and representation. I, you know, I grew up without anything. So like, you know, Angels in America changed my life, like watching the movie of Jeffrey and, trying to think of Morris, the few things that I had growing up in like the 90s that of gay art and gay characters. And I wanted to do that. And I did, I did like shopping and fucking and hello again. So I played two gay characters in college. And um, so I read about, I read about the British one. And so I knew about it. And then I remember being doing a play in um, St. Louis and reading, you know, like a trade magazine or something. I mean, in my mind, I'm looking on my phone, but I knew they didn't exist then. So it was right, <laughs> like exactly. an actual magazine and reading about this queer as folk they show. They might have faxed and... you the sides at some point. <laughs> oh, no, it's before that. I didn't have the script. And uh, and reading about the that there was going to be an American version and being like, uh, if I could get a, if I can get an audition for this part, I think it'd be good for it. And then, um, yeah, I had just gotten an agent in New York. I was actually freelancing with like, a, a children's booking agent because I looked so young. I didn't, right. I didn't even have an adult agent. Right. Um, yeah. And I put myself on tape. I think I, I think I only put myself on tape once in New York. And then uh, I think there were, I was flown out to LA. There were two callbacks for it and I'd never, ever been to LA. And I think I, I knew then that I might want to move to LA depending right. on how the first year in New York went. Um, and pursue television more than theater at the beginning of my career. So I remember just being like happy that I had a free trip to LA. Like, I think I thought there was a chance I could get it, but it also felt like this is so crazy. Like nobody's ever bought a plane ticket for me. Like yeah. I just thought it was so amazing and bizarre and incredible. And I was like, well, let's see what this is. Where would you have been flying from? Uh, um, well, I, I think I flew from New York once and I flew from um, St. Louis once because I was doing a summer stock job in St. Oh. Louis. That's that's what I was doing when I actually booked Queer as Folk. I had to pull out of the, you know, my ensemble roles at the, at the Muni Theater in St. Louis. To oh, fly so you didn't to get run. to do like the Music Man and then like... I had done it the year before though. This was my second year there. So I'd gotten it out of my system. I was... Right. So one week it's you. You're a good man, Charlie Brown, and the next you're you're you know. Yeah, rehearsing outside. Right. The in the hundred degree. T I mean, it's an amazing place to work. Actually, I I love it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I had to pull out. That must have been. I'm sorry, I have to go do my series now. That must have been. Could you believe it? I was like so. <laughs> I felt so guilty, but people were like, "Go, are you yes, kidding?" Run. <laughs> I remember when I interviewed you up there feeling like you were very self-possessed and confident, but I also thought, I felt for you, I'm like, this must be so heady uh, to be a young person and for that kind of a show, because I remember doing interviews around that time around gay projects. It was always like, 
who's out, who's not out. Do you say, mm-hmm. can you say, it was very loaded. And yeah. there you were, at, you were the young face of this thing. What was that mm-hmm. time like? What do you remember about it? I mean, I remember a lot and very little, I think. Uh, you know, it, it was an insane time. I think I didn't have a context for it. So I wasn't aware of what a bizarre and fascinating experience it was until, you know, in retrospect, now that my life has normalized a little bit, I can look back and be like, that was crazy. How did I right. make it through all that? Um, I think it helped that. I mean, I I think to some extent, I was very self-possessed at that age. I think some of it was fake and some of it was real. Right, sure. <laughs> um, but I grew up, I'd been out for a long time. I never expected to be what, famous or, you know, I just wanted to be an actor. I thought I'd do like, you know, theater work and make a living as an actor and be out and, I just didn't think I'd be famous and being interviewed or being in magazines or I didn't think any of that would happen. Um, I'd already been out. It was hard enough to come out when I was 16 years old. I wasn't about to go in the closet again. Right. I thought, I, you know, I'm doing a show where I'm getting, you know, I'm simulating gay sex. Like, all, like why would I lie? Um, and I was to some extent aware of the political and social importance of being out um you know like i said i i'd come out when i was 16 i you know angels in america was like a huge thing that changed my life like seeing it i remember doing a master class in new york when i was like 17 with tony kushner and he came in and talked to us and he talked about you know politics and being out and i don't know i i uh in a way it was delusional or like um fantastical but I was just committed to this idea of like who I needed to be and what I needed to do and um I think it made it easier for me to navigate or just navigating is probably too kind of word to sort of plow through on the path that I was determined to 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 make it through that crazy time um but it was thrilling too I mean I mean, it was it was it was thrilling to be a part of something like that. That yeah. was just getting that kind of attention. Um, do people still call you Sunshine ever? Sometimes they do. Yeah. <laughs> and how was that? I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, I I love that people, you know, when people love the show, I love hearing stories about you know, positive ways that the show has affected them. Especially, you know, I hear a lot of stories about you know, my character helping people come out or helping, you know, them have a conversation with their family or even, you know, preventing them from feeling so lonely that they, you know, commit suicide or something like that. And those stories are astoundingly moving. I mean, I still, even after 20 years of it, I can't quite absorb it all. Like, it's just such an honor to have played a positive role in a young queer person's life in that way from afar without even knowing it. Um but at the same time, it's still, it's kind of weird when people treat me like a character I played, you know, 20 years ago, because I'm, I'm not that You're person. You're man, as they say. Yeah, I, but, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten used to it. Can you sense when, like, oh, say now it's streaming on Netflix, and then there's this new wave of interest. You, are there sort of waves of when that show kind of reemerges here and there? There definitely used to be. There definitely used to be a time when, you know, they would re-air it during Pride or something, and I'd get you know, recognized more frequently again, or um, there definitely was. Now, not so much. And I don't know if it's that it doesn't air as often anymore, or it's sort of reached, you know, saturation as far as the people who are going to see it already, or um, or I look, you know, different enough. Yeah. But um, I don't sense it as much. I do sense um, when I go to, when I travel, like if I go to smaller areas, but that might just be when I go to places where people don't see celebrity or people they recognize from TV a fair amount, so they're more likely to approach or say sure. something. Um, but I do notice when I when I travel, people approach me more. Yeah. Can you look back yeah. and imagine what it had been like if you had tried to stay in the closet? I think that would have been the worst. I mean, it would have been idiotic. I, 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 I mean, hard. I probably would have worked more, certainly I, at the beginning then, but <laughs> I, uh, I couldn't have... 
This, I mean, I couldn't have done that. I, I just, it, it was not, it's not in my makeup as a human being to yeah. have, 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 to have done that. Yeah, it would not have been fun. Did you no. have fun? Was it fun? Yeah, doing Queer as Folk, yeah, it was, it was really fun. It was everything. I mean, it was as positive um, professionally, personally, creatively, and as, you know, difficult in all those ways too, I think as any very significant job would be, but it was certainly fun. I mean, ridiculous hours, ridiculous scenes, such a, like a loving and eccentric and talented cast group of people, um, an amazing crew. Hmm? Do you have a favorite memory of it? (laughs) I do. Oh my gosh. I have a favorite memory, but I, I, I think I recently told it and people like in, in a reunion or something where there were other people from the cast and they're like, no, that's not what happened. So I feel like I've had favorite memories that I've been retelling over and over again that have warped and warped and warped beyond anything that might have happened. But I swear to God, in my memory, this is real. Um, That's all that counts. Right? Yeah. Um, so it was, it was like the last shot of the first season and we had, they were shooting. I don't remember what they were shooting, but I had wrapped, like I had wrapped a few hours earlier and, um, you know, was drinking champagne with some people who were wrapped and we were just waiting for them to shoot the final, whatever. And we were all going to have a toast and we were done for a season. And then suddenly they were like, we need a pickup shot of Randy we need another shot, a close-up of Justin getting hit in the head with the bat. <laughs> that uh, when Justin gets hit in the right, head. he gets gay bashed. Yeah, he does. I know. Um, Spoiler alert from a long time ago. Yeah, if you haven't seen it yet, it's been 23 years, so get on it. Right. Uh, so it was like, what? what? I, I wasn't ready to work. I thought I was wrapped and da-da-da-da. And they put me in the tuxedo and like did my hair and everything. And then... You know, because we we didn't have this the location anymore. Like uh, that was done in like a, a parking garage that we were, were on location for. But they they just had a section of the studio that you know they had dismantled part of the set, so it was just sort of a black void, and it was going to be a, like a close up of me. And so they set it up, and you know they would just yell like, "Hey, Randy!" And I turn around and. In my memory, like a bunch of different cast and crew had like a Nerf bat and were like beating me in the face over and over again. Um, and to me, that and that was like the final shot of first season. I don't know if it actually happened that way. It it did happen close enough. I mean, I'm not knowingly lying. Um, I think somebody was like, no, it's just Hal. And they only did, you know, we got it in one shot. It's not like there were multiple takes and people lined up hitting you in the face with a Nerf bat. But, you know, as long so as I tell the story. was it a shot that was not needed? It was just a joke? Or was it a needed shot? No, no, they did need it. And they right. ended up using it. It's just that I think they just had a wider shot, but they wanted, like, they wanted yeah. a close-up of my face. They yeah. did end up using it. Because you just see something sort of swipe camera. You don't yeah. um, actually see me getting hit in the face. I think they did actually use the shot. Um, I have I mean, I haven't watched it in so many years, but I think they did. I remember being like, it's so funny that that was this last thrown on shot. Yeah. Amazing. Well, what a thing um, to be a part of. Um, tell people how they can see Cock. Yeah. Cock is stu- uh, streaming at the Studio Theater. So you can go to the studiotheater.org. The theater is spelled T-R-E at the end. It's because it's um, artsy. It's because they're legit. Because they're legit. It's they're a theater. classy operation. They are a classy operation. So you go to Studio Theater, uh, you buy a ticket, and you can stream it up until the 19th of April. And I would highly recommend you do it. It's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I would love everybody to see it. It's I was, really good. I've been telling all my friends that I know love theater, like, you got to watch this. Um, yeah, I'm glad it, you know, it's so hard. We didn't know... You know, it's hard to know what we're, any of us are doing. It's this sort of hybrid medium that has been created this year that, that theater people are making. But it's it's very happy to me to hear that, you know, people are being able to see it all over the world, but it is reminding them of, of the theater and the, the really specific experience of being in a theater and seeing yes. a play. Because God knows I miss it. Yeah, that's the experience I had with it. Um, you talked to before about, you know, being out when you did Queer Smoke. How have you noticed conversations around that stuff changing? It feels like in recent years, 
being out, who's in, who's out, roles, characters, it feels like the conversation is a lot different. What's your take I, on that in terms of auditions and things? Well, um, I mean, I will say auditioning as a gay man for the past 20 years, you get some stories, man. You I'm do get sure. some stories. Um, I, would love, I would love a story, <clears throat> even if it's, unless it's horrifying. No, I mean, I'll tell a story, but I, I will say, um, I'm, I think that queer people are beginning to advocate more aggressively as they should to make sure that we're not only represented by the roles, but by the artist playing the roles. I, I think historically and, and still now, but definitely historically, straight people have been, you know, really, really elevated for playing uh, gay, trans, queer roles in general. And I think it's been harder for queer performers uh, to be taken seriously playing playing gay roles or playing anything. Um, and I think, you know, thinking about representation going beyond just, you know, you know, actors who have not never had this experience portraying a story like this is that's the that conversation has been evolving very quickly and very recently in a way that makes me happy. Um, I do have this. It's funny because especially years ago, I mean, it's changed so much. I don't go in for the kind of things I used to go in for. And the kind of gay roles that there are now are just so, I mean, they're better. There's just so many, there's more of them. They're more diverse. They're more interesting. There are different kinds of things. So it's better. It's very different. You know, back when Queer as Folk was happening, I think because I'm a gay actor, because of Queer as Folk, I, I've never gone in for a straight role on television ever, I don't think. And I don't know that I ever would be considered for it. And I don't have any issue with that um, because I like being gay and I want to tell gay stories and play gay characters because I love gay people. Um, but definitely years ago, it really felt like you had to try to perform queerness in a way that straight people wanted it to be, that straight people wanted it to be. Right. And um, I remember once going in for a part, these roles, and often there'll be like two gay roles, like a, a, a couple, and they'll just have all the gay actors go in for both roles at the same time. Like they won't decide that they want one to be a certain thing and another thing. Like they're not really two different characters. They're just a unit. Like right. the two gay guys, like the gay couple. Right. And, and I'm like, and why aren't these two different people? Like, what? I don't right. understand. Like, <laughs> and they're interchangeable. I was interchangeable. Saying. I mean, still all the time. Like half the time when I go in for a gay couple now, it's like I go and you go in for both of them. Right. I even Which have is my just own weird. sort of experience with that something like that like i was on the reality show kathy griffin my life on the d list uh -huh. because we were actually friends when that show started and i was one of her and they they ended up calling us in the after it was edited the main gaze right. um which was a little bit of an eye roll but i went with it, it was fine um yeah. but then there was kind of a falling out that happened and we were no longer on the show but then they just were like we'll get some other ones like it was sort of like a we were a purse or whatever it is. Oh it, yeah, absolutely. That was kind of how that that time felt in a way. Um, I mean, it's tokenism. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. There was it was this idea that we're just flowers that can just be interchanged or something. I don't know. It's, yeah, and let's be honest. I mean, it still happens like all the time. Yeah. But I mean, I remember once going in for a couple, and a gay couple, and I, I, you know, I don't know which one I'm going in for first, but, you know, the main one is, was, I mean, straight presenting. Right. And the boyfriend was, whatever, queer, flamboyant. flamboyant, or whatever word that, you know, straight yeah. people want to use to describe whatever it is that we brilliantly are. And, um, and I remember, you know, it was like I was 27-year-old gay man, lived a gay, and I was sort of being, you know, gay-splained by, you know, a 22-year-old straight female casting assistant on how to present my, my gayness, which, you know, and it was very clear. She was like, you know, the, the first guy. And, and so much of the plot of this thing I was going in was about, like, you know, a straight presenting gay guy brings home a flamboyant boyfriend and his family disapproves. And, right. and, uh, 
and I remember going in for the straightish one, you know, she's like, so he doesn't, you know, it's not like, he's not overly expressive. Like he's, he's just a dude next to, you know, all this like coded language yeah. to try to be like, don't act gay. And, uh, <laughs> and I just remember thinking like, just cast a straight dude. Like you're going to cast a straight dude. Like you, <laughs> and, um, and then I remember doing it once and being like, yeah, but can you do like, just do less with your hands? You know, just that kind of thing. Right. And then, and then she's like, maybe it'd be better for the, for the, for the other gay guy. Right. And I'm like, great. Yeah, let's do that one. And she's like, this one's the life of the party. The, like all these like sort of cliched coded words that. Right. And I just remember thinking, you know, A, as a human being, like, I'm between these two cliches that you're casting. Like, right. I'm never going to be, like, you're going to cast, like, a gay guy. You're going to cast a straight guy in both roles because straight guy is going to be better at the straight role and a straight guy is going to be better at, like, playing this, like, cliche that you've created that is, like, the butt of the joke of this episode of the sitcom or whatever. Right. That kind of thing was, is the standard. It, it was the standard. It's, it's really different now. It's just much better. The characters are better written. The people are more respectful. Um, there's certainly more queer people behind the scenes and in front of the scenes and, and in every area of production. So it feels very different now. Right. And I think it's not like things like that don't happen now, but you can you can call it out. Whereas I think at the time that was just, if I complained about it, people would be like, that's the industry. Like, that's what it is. Get right. used to yeah. it. You, know? you would look like a, a, a pain in the ass. Yeah. And oh. uh, you had to keep it to yourself till you got to the parking lot. Exactly. And then weep or cry or however you express yourself. Uh, I have a couple more questions. What's the dream gig? What would you love to do that you haven't gotten to do yet? Oddly, I mean, my desires have become simpler and simpler as, as the years have gone by. I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. I can't answer that question. I, I mean, I want to keep working with the people I love. I want to keep being, I want to be challenged and amazed. And I, I think... I think the dream gig has already is happens like I mean when I look back at all the things I've done and continue to do like it's fulfilled me in so many ways I, I think as I get older um, the need for some kind of stability which is an idiotic thing to search for in this industry but um, no I hear you I I hear you the need to like know I'm going to make a certain amount this year or that year, know that I'm going to be able to save this much for retirement, know that I'm going to not have to switch health insurance this year. You know, those silly things that mattered, like I could have given a fuck when I was 20. Right. Um, now it's like, I just want to keep acting and then make sure that, you know, these certain things are in place so that I don't have this underlying anxiety about growing older and, uh, keeping a roof over my head and keeping myself healthy and my family healthy. Um, that would be a dream. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I hear you and I relate to that a lot. Um, yeah. Do you do any of the social media stuff? Should people follow you anywhere? I'm ungodly terrible at social media, but I am, uh, okay. I, I am on Instagram at Randy Harrison Graham and I do try to make sure people know what I am up to so that they can see things. And uh, I definitely posted some stuff about cock and, some stuff about Babette and Retreat, which is what I am streaming next weekend. I think we're shooting it. Oh, wow. What is that? Just tell us a little about that it. That is, um, uh, Justin Elizabeth Sayre is doing a play reading, uh, one of his plays through Play Preview, and it's a benefit for the Ali Forney Center. Okay, cool. So um, it's a and the cast. Reading. Yeah. Hmm? It's an online reading. It's an online reading, yes. It's an online reading at um, Play Preview. Uh, uh, a benefit. The cast is Jack Weatherall is in it, who played um, Vic on Queer as Folk, yes. but also um, Mary Testa is in it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an it's an amazing cast of people, um, and it's a benefit for an amazing organization. So I'm doing that. But yeah, uh, Instagram is a way to find me the best way. I love it. All right, you mentioned a re reunions before. Have you guys reunited much? The cast of Queer as Folk. Did you guys do an entertainment? We have over one? the years. Yeah. We have over the years. I mean, what was it like two and a half or maybe it was three years ago now, there was this entertainment weekly yeah, special like photographing. Yeah. 
So that was the last time. I mean, I just flew in. I was in the middle of tech rehearsals in San Francisco. So I like flew in for like half a day. I think the rest of the group got a longer full reunion moment than I did. Uh, but the over like? the years, yeah. Hmm? What was it like to be with them? It's always really funny to see everybody again. It, it, it makes me laugh. Uh, it does bring me back to being like a child, like, like 22 years old. It feels much like, you know, when you go home and visit your parents and you start acting like a 13 year old again, it, it has that, that moment, that family dynamic going back into playing this specific role that you played with these people. Yeah, everyone falls back into their roles. Right. Yeah. Um, which is really funny because it feels I feel it feels so far away now in so yeah. many ways, but also so familiar when I'm with everybody. Right. Um, yeah. But over the years, we've done sort of convention things on occasion and reunion things. We did a an online I think we did two online ones like ben, different kind of benefits during the pandemic um, semi reunions with people. It's always good. I mean, I, I love the cast and I love our fan base still. It's um you know, they're bizarre and funny and joyful experiences. I love it. All right. Um, this is my last question. Why do you act? I act to talk to people, I think. Um, I act to communicate. I, uh, I can sometimes have a hard time socially. And I think I, art and theater, um, but specifically uh, film, television, and theater. To me, it's the most streamlined and direct way of communicating. I mean, you get a really well-crafted piece of art. Um, it just feels like somebody's talking to you in the most intimate way, certainly as an audience member. And I've always wanted to, to be a part of that communication uh, from the artist's side. That's why I act. Well, Randy, it's been great talking to you. Good luck with Cock and everything else you're up to. And I hope that you get to do it live someday soon. And I hope that I get to come and see it. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye, Dennis. Thanks again to Randy Harrison. Check out Cock. It is streaming at studiotheater.org through, what's this month? April 18th. It goes through April 18th. There we go. Time is meaningless. I don't know where I am, what I'm doing, but that's what's happening there. All right, so this happened. We did the mismatch game this past weekend for the Gay and Lesbian Center here in L.A. on Zoom. We had a ton of laughs. Um, I think uh, people are a little Zoom fatigued. Not a huge turnout, I don't think. But the people that came had a great time. Um, <laughs> there was a moment last night where Tom Lake as Tilda Swinton was interacting with the Easter Bunny, which was a puppet played by Felix Pyre, and just Tilda Swinton treating the Easter Bunny like a real entity to have a serious conversation with. I don't know. It's something about the absurdity made me howl so much that I'm hosting on Zoom in my room and I get lightheaded. I almost pass out because <laughs> there's something so funny about it. I don't know what. I have to go back and look at it. But um, thanks to everyone that did turn out. We had a great time. Um, and hopefully the next time we do that show, we'll be live in the, in the theater again. Oh, by the way, I got vaccinated too. Johnson and Johnson, baby. Johnson and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, one and done. So I hope this finds you well, wherever you are. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. <laughs>